Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. If you are currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is for you to book in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we will discuss your current health goals, what you can expect from consultations, and we cover any questions that you may have. If you're happy to go ahead, we book in a time for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need a little time to think about it, that is perfectly okay too. To book in a complimentary consultation, simply head over to selendouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section. Alternatively, you will also find the booking link in the show notes on this episode. We hope to meet you very soon. I think I need to start out this intro by apologizing. It has been a minute since I have released a new episode and honestly, My excuse, which I think is a pretty good one, is that I had a baby and I thought that I would be able to keep on top of producing a podcast each week. Uh, And I had endeavored to be ahead before having him, but time just got away from me. I had a lot of things going on in the back end of my business with new team members and things like that joining before I went on maternity leave. So The podcast did unfortunately take a back seat during all that and it became all a little bit too much uh, after I'd had him. So I decided to take a short hiatus, but I'm a little more on top of things now. So here we are. In this week's episode, I am back talking to you with Danielle. Maybe you know, maybe you don't, but Danielle is now practicing out of Celine Douglas Nutrition and over the next few months, you will be hearing a lot more from her. In this episode, we are following on from a recent episode that we did uh, in which we talked about the HPA axis. That stands for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And in that first episode, we were talking about its role in different disease states. So if you haven't listened to that and you're like, HPA what? Um, Maybe go back and listen to that one first. Um, If you are all across the HPA axis and that is not an unfamiliar term, then continue listening. Today, we are chatting all about fasting, restrictive diets, and caffeine, and how these affect your HPA axis. This topic is particularly relevant to anyone who's experimenting or experimented with fasting, restrictive diets, and to be honest, probably relevant to most of us, nearly all of us, who at some point I'm sure have been guilty of drinking a little bit too much caffeine. So in this episode, we'll be talking all about what that does and what signs and symptoms you can be looking out for in your body. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode. Hi, Danielle. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Celine. Thank you for having me back. It's so good to be here. It is. um, So much has happened since we last spoke. You've been away. You went to Nepal for three weeks um, and I've had a baby. So (laughs) both doing big things. Um, And we're back today to talk um, about the HPA axis again. So a bit of a follow on from our last, um, I was going to say 
appointment recording (laughs) Um, and talk about the impact of things like fasting, restrictive diets, um, and caffeine as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is, it is. I'd love to start with if you could just give us a summary again, like if this is the first, if you haven't listened to the first episode, like what is the HPA axis um, Mm -hmm. and um, what are those kind of like basic signs and symptoms that we might have some things going on there? Yeah, yeah, definitely, Celine. So the HPA axis for short, so it's actually the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And essentially it's this communication pathway um, between what we would say our brain and our adrenals. And what this HPA axis is doing day to day is it's responding to our external and our internal environment. So external, um, we're often maybe aware of what's going on around us um, externally, but often, you know, sometimes that can be, you know, things that are happening in our environment we aren't aware of and we're having a stress response. So the HPA axis essentially is also um, governing this stress response. So it is producing when we have that input of a stressor in our environment, the HPA axis will respond accordingly and it then will produce what we call uh, glucocorticoids or for short, those stress hormones. It will produce adrenaline, cortisol, the big one that we always talk about, DHEA, those sorts of things. So this is why the HPA axis is so important, um, especially for us in our modern world, because we're all stressed in some way. So we just, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And it can affect so many different conditions. It can, it can. And I think you'll agree that we often, um, we, whenever we're looking at complex health conditions, there's always a crossover or an overlap or something from the HPA axis that we have to look at. Um, Mm. You know, it's always a factor. It's almost like we can't um, just push it to the side. Um, We've always got to treat it accordingly with everyone that we see really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And because I guess of the different systems that it can affect, like um, it can affect thyroid function, it can affect, um, you know, uh, androgen production, all these different things. Um, That's why it can look like you've got, you know, lots of different health issues. But if we were to kind of trace it back to that top level issue, that's where, you know, it might not just be one thing, but it could Mm-hmm. actually just be that one root issue and that's like the whole root find the root cause thing definitely that we all bang on about <laughs> that we go on all all the time um and that's it well and you know like you're saying whether it's digestion whether it's you know sleep issues whether it's um you know weight issues we can trace it back to the hp axis mm-hmm. so yeah. often so yeah yeah um, and today we're going to go through some of those lifestyle and dietary patterns that can start to affect its function. Um, so where did you want to start with this? Um, this is a fun one, Solan. I think one of the best places that we can probably start is caffeine. <laughs> um, and because once again, most people are having some form of caffeine in their day, if not mm-hmm. multiple forms. Um, and it has such an impact on the HPA axis. And the reason for that is that caffeine will trigger that stress response in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we consume caffeine and also caffeine's absorbed quite quickly. Um, so that's another thing to think about that. I think even, you know, the time frame is within about 45 minutes of us drinking caffeine it's absorbed um and so within that time frame we're going to initiate a stress response so what that means is that the body will produce cortisol when we drink caffeine that's Mm -hmm. just a given and so of course 
if we're also having caffeine at interesting times of the day, <laughs> you know, not just the morning, which we'll still focus on, you know, looking at the morning. But if you're someone who's drinking caffeine in the afternoon or the evening, you'll absolutely be uh, triggering this, this cascade of stress hormones to be produced. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Um, and what are some of the other things, I guess, caffeine, what does that do for, you know, like our blood sugar and things like this? Cause I find often it's like that light bulb um, moment mm-hmm. for clients in clinic, um, particularly those with metabolic health sorts of issues, which we'll, we'll talk about the weight loss side of things um, in today's episode. But, um, you know, it, it is that real light bulb moment for them when they're like, oh, so when I'm drinking too many cups of coffee, it's actually mm-hmm. stimulating my body to break down more sugar and dump it into the bloodstream. Like people do not realize that that's happening. Exactly. So, and that's it. It's such a good point for us to, to come to is that. Um, And once again, in conjunction with cortisol, when we are having that stress response, once again, I don't think many people realise is that we're also triggering um, that glucose as well, that glucose Mm -hmm. response to be happening. So cortisol will also essentially liberate that glucose into the bloodstream because the body needs glucose to adequately have that stress response. So Mm -hmm. If you think about from a blood sugar dysregulation perspective, which we would probably say most people are suffering from to some degree, some Mm -hmm. more mild, some more severe, but everyone has some sort of blood sugar issue. Um, From a dietary perspective, caffeine can be a huge, a huge driving factor for this. And so also too, if we think about a very classic scenario um, and we've spoken about this, it's the, you know, we're having coffee we're first thing in the morning on an empty stomach Mm -hmm. that's wreaking havoc on our blood sugar levels um because it's the first sort of input that the body's getting in the morning and essentially it's telling the body okay here's here's some caffeine we're going to have a stress response we're going to have that cortisol produced and also we're going to throw our blood sugar out from the get-go in the morning so um blood sugar is a huge uh, area that we look at with caffeine consumption um but also to digestion i think that's another one that we need to come back to in terms of where caffeine can also impact our digestive capacity it can lead to sometimes issues in terms of um, symptoms so that whether that be reflux um, or even long term especially if we're having it on an empty stomach we can start to look at issues with the gut lining Mm -hmm. um, leaky gut those sorts of things because caffeine in its nature as well is quite acidic so that's probably another thing to remind Mm -hmm. us you know of that impact on on the gastrointestinal system as a whole yeah, definitely. And I mean, if you have a client as well coming to you with like sort of those IBS-like mm-hmm. symptoms, sometimes it is, you know, maybe they do have IBS or IBS. I shouldn't say that. IBS is, isn't really a thing anyway, but like, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe there is something further there going on with their gut, but it can be something as simple as like making those tweaks to caffeine consumption or maybe having too many coffees and things like that. Um, and I just think from, you know, a stress and anxiety perspective, if you are someone that is predisposed to feeling stressed, feeling anxious throughout the day, like caffeine is not your friend. And that's coming from like someone who loves coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you need to understand what it's actually doing in your body. So it's causing you to, um, produce additional stress hormones it starts to then also like affect your appetite which is something that we talked about before we started recording where if you 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 are that person that's saying like i'm not hungry in the morning is the first thing that you're doing having a cup of coffee because um 
if when we understand what it's doing with our stress hormones, I mean, how many people want to sit down and eat a meal when they're stressed? Like most of people don't want to. Yeah. Um, and so when you've got that internal production of stress hormones going on, um, that is, you know, diverting away um, your appetite and sort of desire to eat first thing in the morning. And then we've got that um, blood sugar response. And then, you know, the flow on effect of that throughout the day can be increased cravings, wanting more sugar. Um, yeah. All sorts of different things. Is there anything there that um, I've left off? Yeah. And, and as well, Celine, I think fatigue, that's a huge yes. one. Um, energy. So we, if we think about as well, once again, the HPA axis, it can, when it's imbalanced, as we spoke about on our last podcast episode, is it's such a driver of energy and fatigue type issues. So yeah. if we're also then feeding that with caffeine, which gives us that initial hit of energy, of course, mm-hmm. um, we're going to be looking for that stimulus across the day more and more. And, you know, how often does this lead to then people having multiple cups of coffee a day? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, we've all done it at some point, but also then um, sugar, because what the body's then telling us is that we need that quick hit of of glucose um and so we look for more of that um you know uh, starchy carbohydrates um refined sugars if we're reaching for those processed package type foods because it's going to be that quick hit of energy that the body needs so um fatigue energy is a big one headaches i find Mm. that's that's just sometimes how often do we speak to people that may even just say look i've got this dull headache all day every day um you know is that something happening from a blood sugar perspective from an adrenal perspective um and also just really like you're talking about Celine, when we're not nourishing our body with the right food the right macronutrients at the right time of day we're just not going to feel great in general so yeah yeah absolutely so main lesson here is like you know caffeine's not necessarily bad we're not demonizing it but let's have it after breakfast um hopefully a breakfast that contains both proteins and fats because again if you're just having like a piece of toast and then having a coffee after you're kind of making things worse because Mm -hmm. that's more glucose in circulation and caffeine is kind of adding fuel on the fire there. And then I think something that you touched on earlier when we first started talking about this is like the timing of coffee as well. Um, And when we look at our circadian rhythm and what our kind of natural cortisol levels are supposed to be doing across the day and supposed to being the key word in that (laughs) sentence, because I dare say if we sort of went and tested a hundred people, I'm going to say, I don't know what the stat is, but a lot are going to have dysregulation in that cortisol pattern across the day. So afternoons, um, and of course having heading into the evening, it's supposed to like peter off, um, and, and be starting to decline as we kind of like prepare for sleep. Um, and so when you're having something like coffee in the afternoon, you're of course just um, artificially increasing your cortisol levels. Um, and I had a client this week on Monday um, and she told me that she was having around six cups of coffee a day in which I nearly fell off my chair. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) she said she was also having one before bed, but said that it didn't affect her. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, of course we all, we all have actually a a different sort of like tolerance to caffeine and we there's fast and slow metabolizers of caffeine. So, you know, arguably it does affect people differently. Some of us are more sensitive than others, but I can guarantee you there's no way that it doesn't affect you in some way having that many coffees and that many coffees um, 
before bed as well. So yes. yes, the time of day matters. I generally have a rule, no coffees afternoon for my yeah. clients. I like that. For me personally, even if I have a coffee at 11, it's going to affect my sleep as well. So that's just kind of a general rule, but you're going to have to find your sweet spot there. And I think if you are someone that's predisposed to like anxiety, feeling stressed, all of that, like switch to decaf. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like we were saying, Celine, it's actually, there's some really good options now. Yeah, there and decaf are. Decaf can taste really good. So It does. Yeah. yeah. We have a coffee machine at home and we use um, the All Press brand oh. and it's actually really good. All press is amazing. 10 out yep. of 10 would recommend. Yeah. <laughs> you can't taste the difference. Yeah, agreed. No, that's, I think, I agree, Celine. I think there's even like from a timing perspective, even in the morning, there's sometimes what I focused on is like um, the research actually says within the, try not to have caffeine within the first 90 to 120. Yes. So first literally hour and a half to two hours of your morning. If you're someone who wakes up at 5.30, try to push that coffee at least until 7, 7.30, yeah. you know. So that should be pretty doable. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And eat yeah. first. And eat first. And eat, of course. And also yeah. also drink some water. I always say as well, if you can hydrate as well first thing in the morning, yes. which we should all be doing because caffeine's a diuretic as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what about fasting? So let's just say like you don't, um, maybe you have a coffee, but you yeah. don't, I mean, everyone's going to have different variations of what they consider to be fasting, right? But yeah. some people might fast and have a long black um, as an mm-hmm. example, which technically is still, um, well, I mean, depends who you ask, but let's just say that's still considered fasting. Um, how can that start to affect our HPA axis? Mm, great question, Celine. And this is where, you know, <laughs> if we're moving into this space of going, okay, how is caffeine affecting the HPA axis? And then throw that into as well, fasting, how is that affecting the HPA axis? It's like the double whammy here. And so often I see a lot of people doing that, but just drinking, say, like a black coffee, um, yeah. you know, in the morning. What I would say, and this is, you know, speaking to our audience of women, is that fasting is going to affect women much differently to men. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure there's women out there, I've spoken to clients that have said, I tried fasting, it didn't work for me. My husband tried it, worked amazingly for him. You know, so there's the, a lot of people sort of nodding their heads with that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's essentially happening is that in the same vein of that sort of caffeine causing that sort of stress response, mm-hmm. if we're fasting too long and also if we are someone who is already prone to HPA axis dysregulation type issues, that extended fasting period is also going to put our body essentially into that sort of state of um, fight or flight. So it's actually really going to affect the sympathetic nervous system. So it's going to increase that stress response rather than do what it's designed to do. So there's so many beautiful um, uh, benefits out there of fasting. I'm sure a lot of people have heard them. There's a lot of research around fasting, which I think is great. Um, But extended fasting can sometimes be the worst thing that particularly women yeah. Um, could be doing and and beyond that as well Celine we know that it affects the what we call the HPT axis mm-hmm. so the thyroid as well um, yeah. you know so it's it's sort of leaning into all of all of those areas um, it's just going to have a flow on effect in terms of our hormonal balance mm-hmm. um, as women overall so yeah definitely and I think it is I mean, part of its benefit is that it is a stress, which can be hormetic. Is that the correct term? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like a beneficial stress, just as, you know, 
jumping into cold water can be a hormetic stress on the body. Mm-hmm. But um, I think we need to understand that, yes, like you said, our bodies are very different to men's. And the reality is like for um, a healthy reproductive system, whether or not reproducing is part of your health goals or not, it doesn't matter. Hormone balance and reproductive health are really um, one and the same. Um, your brain needs to perceive that the environment is safe because ultimately um, if it's not, it's not going to be safe for it to bring a baby into the environment. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you want babies or not. Um, that goal really for your physiology is, is still the same. And it, I mean, it totally makes sense, right? Like if your body is perceiving that there's a food shortage and it's stressful, why would it want to conceive, right? Because there might not be adequate food stores to, um, you know, fulfill on a viable pregnancy or, or nourish that baby. So, um, that's obviously very, very simplistic, but that's part of the detriment there. Um, and it depends as well. I think some of the other, um, I guess, potential negatives here are, are that, you know, if you are then fasting, but then that's leading to blood sugar dysregulation. And so when you get home in the afternoon, you're just like smashing the pantry with everything you can find. Like, mm-hmm. is it really worth it not eating for that extra two hours in the morning? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I do think that everyone should be going like 12 hours overnight fasting. So giving their digestion a good break. Um, so that's why I guess definitions are helpful around like what actually is fasting or what's not Mm -hmm. um, because we all do fast I guess to some extent um, which is really healthy and natural Um, but we're more probably talking over like would you say like the 14 15 mark for women exactly so and so and that's a good point to distinguish here if we're really starting to get over that sort of 14 hour fasting mark yeah that's where we start to see more of these detrimental effects um, yeah definitely and, and there might be some that can like tolerate slightly longer yeah. um possibly in um like menopause and things like that that's where it would be more suitable um but yeah generally speaking most of us don't need to be going longer than 14 hours or so um without eating and i think um generally in clinic if someone does have say like something like amenorrhea I am very strict on wanting to keep it no longer than 12 hours like I really want I don't want them to you know have dinner then go to sleep get up and train in the morning have a coffee and then like maybe have breakfast around 10 a.m. I'm like, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> not at all. And that's exactly it. So, and as you were saying, um, hormone balance and, and reproductive health are one and the same for yeah. women that are still of an age where we are menstruating or mm-hmm. that is the you know, desire for our body to be menstruating. So I agree, particularly in cases of something like amenorrhea, that that extended fasting would just be a a, a definite no. Yeah, um, you know. So, um, but also too from a metabolic health perspective, uh, once again coming back to that blood sugar control, mm-hmm. it could really be something that could be actually throwing that out more for someone um, if they're trying to do an extended fast. Yeah. And then, like you said, they're then when they're opening up their eating window, this is the other thing. It's like, how are we opening that eating window? A lot of the time, people are doing that with a really balanced meal. So. that's also once again contributing to that whole stress cascade and that HPA axis issue there. So Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, the irony which feeds into what we're going to talk about with the restrictive diets next is like the irony with this sort of thing is that 
you know, you mentioned the HPT axis, which is hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis is like all of these things can really start to impact your thyroid health. And your thyroid is basically your, like your metabolism. It really sets the tone of your metabolic rate. So the irony with these things is that often, especially with things like fasting and restrictive diets, they might be done to help us lose weight or achieve a certain physical goal, but um, we can actually be running in the wrong direction um, mistakenly. So did you want to talk to us about, yeah, restrictive diets? What are some of the ones out there? Um, We were obviously talking about one in particular off air, which is quite horrifying. (laughs) Um, A couple actually. Um, And then even maybe tell us about your client that you're working with at the moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely, Celine. So restrictive diets, I mean, it's a banner term, isn't it? Because I think there's so many that fall under that banner nowadays, unfortunately. Um, But if we want to keep things quite simple and probably the most common that people are probably being um, exposed to or have tried. um, So when I say restrictive, like something like calorie counting. So if we're we're, we're counting really from calories rather than from where we more so count macronutrients you know that's that's a difference as well so I find within that calorie counting people are either focusing on very low calorie intake mm-hmm. um, which once again for a short term period of time might may give them those weight loss effects but long term it's affecting that whole metabolic their whole metabolic health and thyroid and those sorts of things so they're actually then struggling later down the track to maintain a healthy weight mm-hmm. so Calorie counting is a big one. Um, Macronutrient restriction. So when we say that your classic is like your low-carb diets, um, Mm -hmm. and when I say low-carb, probably no carbs. So we know there's a lot of diets out there that actually completely cut carbohydrates. Um, So that that can be an issue. Another one is actually... fats so sometimes people are actually cutting fat so we probably thought that the low fat thing was a 90s thing um it's not it's 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 not it's still relevant today um and i'll go into that in a moment with actually some sort of uh, programs out there that advocate for that um your classic shake diets where people are literally just drinking powdered shakes for most of the day or replacing a lot of their meals with these shakes. So once again, very low calorie diets, um, but also no nutritional value coming through in those, those types of shake diets. Another one, which some people may be familiar with is um, the HCG diet. Um, That one, I just (laughs) have a lot of issues with um, and have seen actually a lot of people that went to health professionals with good intentions to do something that will support weight loss, metabolic health, and go on a a highly restricted diet like this. I think that one's even 500 calories a day. Um, But what they're also taking in conjunction with that is a particular hormone to support weight loss. So it's, it's all very wrong. (laughs) Um, And if we think about, yeah, in the short term, they might lose a couple of kilos or extreme, you know, they might have some extreme weight loss if they're, overweight or obese um but is that actually going to be beneficial for them long term probably not Mm. um so and this brings to light what we were talking about so and i did have a client um you know we were we were talking through sort of her journey with um with restrictive diets um and I'm not sure if I should say the name, but a particular gym franchise out there um, has uh, as part of the program that they do um, a, a diet that they have and they, they give to their, um, their clients. Um, and this one highly restricts certain macronutrients, particularly fats, mm-hmm. um, but also for the amount of 
activity that these people are doing and the exercise and so the output of energy the amount of calories that they're and I will say that they're surviving on um Mm. is incredibly damaging to their health overall um their metabolism and hormone balance and we see this once again affects women more than men in these sorts of cases yeah it was 1400 calories which is just like so low I wouldn't put anyone on I mean Um, I don't calorie prescribe anyway um I like to get an idea of how many macronutrients people are eating, but I tend to kind of do the math on that um, if it needs to be done. Um, but, yeah, 1,400 calories, which is just so, so, so low, um, and particularly when they are doing um, this challenge and probably working out maybe like five times a week or so. I mean, I guess if it's a challenge, they probably are doing it um, fairly strictly. And I don't know if it's this particular one, and it, it could well be, but I've seen one that, um, as say it's like a six-week challenge, the frequency of workouts goes up, um, but in the same line, the amount of calories is going down. So they might start out at, let's say, like 1,600 calories a day, but by the end of the six weeks or whatever, they're down to, you know, 1,200, 1,100, whatever, but the amount of workouts per week has gone up. Um, and I just, I can't... <laughs> It's just scary, isn't it? It is. It is really scary. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's very damaging for a lot of people. And this particular client that you're working with, she has no period at the moment. Um, And coming back to what we were talking about before, well, of course, like that environment that she's living in is not safe, really. It's not safe. She doesn't have adequate nutrition. Um, and I'm sure there's more complexity to it than that, but that is definitely part of it. And I, um, have had a number of amenorrhea clients this year and they've pretty much all had that very similar, um, health timeline of store and story of like getting really into their fitness, um, and being prescribed something from their trainer, um, even getting into like more of that bodybuilder type um, thing. Um, and it's just so common that we then see your your period um, has has sort of gone AWOL and, and um, disappeared. And that is like your textbook HPA axis issue. Absolutely, Cyan. And also, and I think this is what's really difficult and what we see in our clients is that so that short-term goal or period of time where they were highly restricting calories, they were exercising, you know, multiple times a week, a day even, Mm. doing quite high-intensity workout. What we see now is the symptoms they have on the back of that are things like, yes, amenorrhea, but then what they're really struggling with is is the weight gain that yeah. comes on the back of that because the body is in such a... Um, and they probably get misdiagnosed with PCOS. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then they get given certain medications or get told yeah. go on the pill or, you know, so, and this is it. We can see where, we can see what the root cause is, you know, yeah. as practitioners, we see that. But then trying to get our clients back to a path of healthy eating and mm-hmm. actually eating adequate calories. And, and I know you'll agree with me, Celine, sometimes the hardest thing that our clients have to take on is when we say you need to eat more to get a period because mm-hmm. they've been taught previously to eat less, eat less, restrict, restrict, restrict to achieve a certain body, but no one sort of told them along the way, oh, hey, hang on a minute, if you do this, 
this is what's going this is how it's going to affect your hormones your reproductive organs all of these sorts of things so um you know and that's that's sort of the damaging process that restrictive dieting will have um and I just, you know, I hope that there's more and there is more education out there, um, you know, and even podcasts like ours actually just bringing this to light to sort of yeah. tell women that, hey, this doesn't have to be, you know, an option. Um, we yeah. don't have to restrict our calories to next to nothing to achieve a certain body um, because it's also going to have such detrimental effects on our health overall. So Yeah, you can absolutely yeah. eat food, feel satiated, feel yeah. happy and lose weight in the process. You don't have mm-hmm. to um you know like white knuckle your way there and then frankly end up like totally damaging your health um and it is a real like unlearning I think when with the whole restrictive diet side of things it it takes time um and I tend to always do it quite slowly particularly with the fats like I might have a goal of you know, I don't, not going to give a particular gram amount, but wanting to get them to get to a certain amount. And I'm like, we're going to need to do this over like four months really, because, you know, um, a, from a digestive perspective, having not eaten them for so long, you're probably not going to tolerate it very well if we start just adding in a whole bunch of fats. But I think more important, even is like the mental aspect of that for people, they kind of need to like inch their way there. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a metabolic perspective, you know, if you've been eating a really restrictive, like 1400 calorie diet, we're not going to want to get you up to closer to 2000 or whatever, like overnight, it kind of needs to be done. Um, yeah. In quite a strategic way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're the main things I think that, um, there's obviously a whole bunch of other things, but the main, um, lifestyle factors and dietary patterns that affect HPA axis would be excess caffeine or just yet yeah, excess caffeine, having it um, first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, having it when you already produce tons of your own cortisol and adrenaline and you don't need mm-hmm. to be artificially producing more um, fasting. And when we say fasting, that's obviously not like your healthy kind of 12 hours overnight, but for longer periods of maybe um, 15 hours and more, um, and for females as well, specifically because fasting can be very beneficial, obviously for men. Um, and then in terms of restrictive diet, so like your calorie counting, your fitness challenges where the, um, you know, the plan really hasn't been correctly prescribed. Um, and I just see it all the time. The other thing, I guess I just want to really quickly mention while we're on the topic, it's not so relevant to HPA axis, but, I often see, which I just have to unfollow these people because it makes me so angry (laughs) on Instagram, like um, trainers, I guess, or people in the fitness industry um, showing like what they eat in a day. And they're obviously, you know, have this physique that a lot of people would find like idealistic and be striving to achieve. And quite frankly, like the food they're eating, I would not feed to my dog. I mean, we pretty much feed our dog what we eat, but like, I wouldn't feed it to my dog. And they're kind of like, you know, basically look at this, all this crap that I eat that fits into 1400 calories or whatever it is that they're, and it's like disgusting things like crumpets and like shitty muffins. I don't know, just all this yucky stuff. Highly processed. They put like sprinkles on things and Mm -hmm. then they're there with their like six pack and abs. Yeah. Um, And it obviously just makes me really annoyed, right? Because, um, it's just nothing, like it's nothing to do with health, 
It's and I couldn't agree more, Solan. And I, I the what the what I eat in a day sort of post. I can't tell you how many times I open one and I just roll my eyes because yeah. I agree. What annoys me about those posts too is it is always started with a photo or a selfie of that person's physique. Yeah. So it's like, firstly, why do we like if you're showing us what you're eating? Why do we care what? your body looks like realistically yeah it shouldn't be a factor but this is what society has done right it's, yeah. it's sort of combined the two and gone if you want to achieve this kind of body this you know perfect body which is ridiculous anyway this is what you need to eat to get there and we know that everyone's physiology makeup is completely different um but also i couldn't agree with you more it's the whole let's fit whatever we can into a calorie amount and it's all of these empty calories. Like yeah. it, it really is empty calories. And I'm looking at that food just thinking, well, that's giving that person no nutritional value whatsoever. Yeah, I'm like, where's the zinc? Where's the iron? <laughs> like, where's the iodine you need for your thyroid? Exactly. Like all exactly. of that kind yeah. of thing. Where's the fiber? The zero fiber in that thing. Whatever yeah. Is yep, mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's, I kind of like other B and L on it. And when we look at like, that can definitely be another stress as well. And the HPA axis is kind of just going, I've got these 1400 calories and I'm going to fit like ice cream into it and whatever else. I'm not saying you can't eat ice cream when it like sometimes, but just kind of having that mindset of like, it doesn't matter what I eat as long as it like fits my macros or fits my calorie amount or whatever. Um, we need those nutrients to actually make things work properly in our body. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And the other thing which we were going to talk about, which I'll just touch on quickly, is when to wrap up the restrictive diet side of things. When we restrict for too long, there is research that shows we can tr- trigger um, our starvation genes. So, basically, these genes exist so that um, if we were going through a period of famine or starvation, um, these genes could be triggered and it would actually allow our body to store fat um, and store energy reserves so that, um, you know, if there was going to be no food available for a long period of time, we would have these body reserves to actually survive. Um, of course, the reality is now for most of us, we are lucky enough that we don't have an issue with food shortage. But if we are calorie restrictive um, quite extremely and for a long period of time, we can obviously artificially create that food shortage Um in our brain, basically our brain is starting to receive the message that there is a lack of food available and you can actually trigger those starvation genes. And from my understanding, it was quite a long time ago that I did look at the research around this, but it can be very difficult to actually reverse that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, I think as well, Celine, to speak as well on that topic to people that have done, and how common is it we see people that have done 10 years or 15 years of chronic dieting. Mm. It's so hard each time that they've, say, done a diet, come out of that to then sort of get them back to that, what we may call like a metabolic set point. So that's yeah. always changing in the same vein that you're talking about with these genes to actually reverse them once they've been turned on. If we continue to affect our metabolism in that way, it's going to take a lot of time to get us back to yeah. to that healthy balance. Yeah. yeah, you're going to have to go up very like incrementally and yes. slowly. So like probably... I don't know, under 50 calories a week, like step it up very, very slowly. So, and that's where, you know, you wouldn't want to just listen to something like this and be like, oh my God, I've been doing the wrong thing. Let me just increase my amount by, you know, 500 calories a day. You need Um, someone to definitely guide you through 
yeah for sure for sure Mm um amazing well is there anything else that you wanted to add to today's chat I think we've covered, yeah, the, the really key things with what's going to affect the HPA axis from a lifestyle perspective and what I'd say we see in clinic all the time. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think we've, we've covered the key ones there. So. Amazing. Um, thanks so much for your time today, Danielle. And My if pleasure. anyone has any questions, obviously feel free to reach out to Danielle via the website or Instagram as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.